Health Society asks. My name is Jennifer Grossman. My buddies know me as JAG. I am the CEO of the Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit organization connecting young people with the ideas of Ayn Rand in creative, accessible ways. Today, we have a real treat for you. We are honored to have uh, Tim Draper join us. And of course, uh, before I even begin to introduce him, we are streaming on multiple platforms. So if you're with us on Zoom, type your questions into the Q&A. If you are on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, just type them into the comments. We will get to as many of them as possible. So Tim Draper is a venture capitalist, a philanthropist, and a leading proponent of cryptocurrency. He is the founder of Draper Associates, Draper Fisher Jurvetson, and the Draper Venture Network. He is the author of How to Be a Startup Hero, whose audiobook I have uh, listened to twice. It's, um, it's really two books in one. It's both a practical blueprint for launching your own startup, uh, but it's also a memoir of sorts and includes behind the scenes accounts of his investments in companies uh, such as Skype, Hotmail, Tesla, Robinhood, SpaceX. Um, the book also covers Tim's forays into policy reform, including advocating more parental choice in education and outside of the box thinking for reforming our home state of California. Uh, Tim has created BizWorld, which teaches young children how business works, and most famously, which we're going to discuss, Draper University of Heroes, uh, a residential and online school based in San Mateo, California, just down the street. Um, and uh, his students, his graduates, graduates have gone on to launch hundreds of innovative, disruptive startups. Tim, welcome again. Thank you so much for joining us. Terrific, Jag. Thanks so much for having me. This is just so much fun. And whether you or somebody has read my book, no <laughs> one's ever given an account of what it's really about. And the idea is to set up first, are you, are you cut out to be an entrepreneurial hero? Are you cut out to be one? And then the, the last half is, okay, so you want to run a business. You've come this far. You want to run a business. Here are my tips. Um, so that has... Uh, that, it's so funny because I rarely hear anybody who's actually read it. Well, uh, yes, uh, I have read it actually three times because I've read the hard copy and uh, and I just, I love audiobooks. And so we are, and I also found it a rich trove of, uh, of quotes, uh, not just yours, but all of the inspirational quotes with which you begin the various chapters. So those are being memed as we speak and, and we're going to also um, mine, well, maybe not mining Bitcoin, but we'll be mining mining uh, insights from from this from this webinar. Um, and you know, I, I do recall the passage that you have. Uh, you are you brought your students to um, meet Elon Musk. It was the day that he was really uh, opening his factories and and uh, announcing uh, his his plans. And and the governor was there. And uh, and. So you may not have caught him on, on the best day and he gave his advice to your students, uh, don't do it, which you know could seem kind of like a, a downer, but the way that you interpreted it is that like, if after knowing, you know, knowing this is going to take a ton out of you, it's gonna cost 
uh, your time, your friendships, your family. And if you are undeterred, then, you know, you've got actually a, a much better shot. Yeah, he, he looked at that as, as a real motivator for an entrepreneur, because the entrepreneur says, you know, if somebody tells me not to do it, I, I know I can keep going and prove him wrong. And to the non-entrepreneurs, it's some, Elon Musk told me not to do it, so I'm, I'm back. Fortunately, uh, most of the people who go to Draper University do become entrepreneurs, and most of them would take that advice to say, I, I'm going to do this anyway, and that that was a great moment. It was also a um, a wonderful opening. It was when they launched the the Tesla S car, and um, and I I had bought the the fifth one off the line, and it was a great ceremony, and it was really fun. And then I took all the Tesla employees for rides in my car, my new car. And, and each one had a, had a story about, oh, I'm, I said, what did you do? Well, I designed the rear view mirror, or I designed the dashboard, or I designed the door handle, or the key, which looks like a car. And, and each one had incredible pride, because that was the first day these things were launched. And you could tell something great was happening in this company. It was so unique, and sure has. The company's worth <laughs> Uh, almost half a trillion dollars now. Now you uh, you tell the story of of investing in in Tesla, of getting that that first ride in um, in one of its early uh, prototypes, and um, but you you also talk about the benefits of having management um, of different temperaments, as as you did with DFJ, and. Um, and you know, you you thought this was great. You brought it to your team, and uh, they they were perhaps maybe looking a little bit back at as you described this graveyard of venture capital littered with so many you know uh, failed attempts. Um, but you saw something different, and and you decided to go on and invest uh, personally. So so what what was it that that you saw? Um, but we put, I pushed the partnership and then they, they said, okay, but a smaller amount. And they were probably okay. wise there. Right. Um, Cause then it, it ran out of, it ran out of cash. Because they did run out of money and we had to come up with more and Elon came up with more and he joined the company and grew it from there. And by, at that point it was, Hey, sky's the limit or no sky, no limit. Um, right. Sky is no Elon, longer the limit. Right? Colonized I mean, Mars. They launch one of the Teslas into space. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I was exploring electric cars because um, another guy, Ian Wright, took me for a ride in an electric car. And, I, and he made me strap in with five, uh, a five-point star. And I thought, what? It's an electric car. I mean, it's like a golf cart, right? And he said, well, it's a little different. And we took off and, and we went so fast. And then he came right up to a stop sign and he stopped right on a dime. And I, I went, what? oh my gosh, this is better. People are gonna buy these, even if they're not tree huggers or golfers, they're gonna want something like this. This is gonna be, it's, it's better performance. And so I thought, wow, those lines are gonna cross uh, people are going to want the electric car more than the gas-powered car, and 
uh, it worked out that way. It was a long shot. It was a, an expensive road, but boy, it sure worked out very well. Um, and Ian Wright, we didn't back that one, but I, I followed all the hobbyists in that industry and they all kind of mentioned Tesla. And so then we met with Martin Eberhardt, who was the founder of Tesla at the time. And he, um, and he told us all about how these lithium ion batteries are great, but they explode. And so you need to be able to route around them in case one of them overheats. And, uh, and the other benefit was that you could get a lot more torque because you could get all the batteries working in tandem to, to accelerate the car. And that was um, enough for me to really push it through the partnership. And uh, eventually uh, Steve Jurvetson got on board and he was really excited about it. And then eventually he took the board seat. So, you know, off he ran. Well, I'm personally very grateful because I love my Tesla and uh, I'm, I'm just actually in a couple of weeks I'm getting my Tesla solar panels and my Tesla power walls. So, um, so it's, it's just spectacular. So of course, Tesla has revolutionized transportation, uh, disrupted transportation, uh, disrupting energy, uh, disrupting um, uh, space travel. Um, and of course, an area- but SpaceX, but it's the same guy. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 yeah, exactly. The same, same guy. And actually one of our future uh, Draw My Life videos um, is, is uh, my name is Mars. So we're, we're taking that kind of optimistic vision that he has and, and, talk, and applying it to, uh, to a, a future story of Mars and, and what are the things that could also, you know, endanger our ability to, to get there. Um, and the, the same things that endanger our ability to, to, uh, to, to launch entrepreneurial ventures. Um, so that, that, those are disruptions. You have focused a lot and are well known for your leadership on, on Bitcoin. And I, I actually see you, you know, we talk about wearing our, what, what we love on our, our heart. I'm, I'm wearing the dollar sign. What, what's going on there? That is. <laughs> so this is a Bitcoin tie and um, it was given to me by the Amador Valley High School Investment Club because a very bright guy came to me and he asked if I would come speak to his high school and I, his investment club at his high school. And I thought, well, yeah, that's, I'll do it on a whim. And I went over there and they, and he, um, he gave me this tie and I, I've worn it so many times since uh, it's just been a, a good mission for me to spread the good word around Bitcoin and how it's going to, make our world a better place, decentralize the earth, make geographic borders less relevant, uh, improve our lives, build wealth, build value around the country and around the world. Um, and uh, it really does have that potential. And so I have continued to just pound the, you know, just beat the drum. And, uh, and it seems as though that drum roll just gets louder and louder and louder and louder. I, I was a, a voice in the forest for a while. And now um, it seems like every fiduciary uh, is now looking at Bitcoin and saying, uh, we have to own this asset class because it, is, um, it, it doesn't correlate with any other asset classes. And it's a nice hedge against inflation. And I, I make the point 
there's also a hedge against bad governance and it forces governments to shape up. And if they say, oh, Bitcoin's you know, a bad thing like China did, then Japan opens up and says, well, we're making Bitcoin a national currency. And there's a brain drain out of China going into Japan. And it starts this sort of this sense that <clears throat> it's keeping governments in check. And the governments that um, that put a, a that overregulate it do it at their own peril because a government next door is willing to uh, to embrace it. And <clears throat> you know, if the U.S. had not embraced the internet and let it rip. Uh, we would have missed out on trillions and trillions of dollars of value and so many great consumer products and so much human development. Well, the same thing is happening now. And, uh, and I think um, governments that, that over-restrict are the ones who are hurting their own people uh, at their own self-aggrandizement. So um, the ones who are open are helping their entire economy. And I think the ones that are open now are the ones that are going to take us there over the next 40 years are going to be the big winners, just as the U.S. was a big winner because they became the first democracy, the first free place to live. Uh, the U.S. benefited in a big way. Same thing is now happening with whatever countries open up around Bitcoin. You know, it was interesting. Switzerland started out saying, sure, we'll do a few of these and see how they go. And then they, they clamped down on it. And, uh, and they said, we're gonna do this regulation and this regulation. And then all the, the new technologies started to go to Malta and Gibraltar, Singapore, other places. Um, and then Switzerland said, whoa, hey, we better, we better shape up. And then they lightened up on the regulations and they, they started to encourage more, uh, more activity in their country. And <clears throat> look, these technologies, the Bitcoin, the blockchain that comes from it, that keeps perfect records, uh, smart contracts, those are, are enough to transform anything tied to money or data. So it's going to, we're going to see the transformation of, of not just currency, but banking and commerce and insurance and any number of other fields that are all tied to having data. And then there are all these new applications that are coming after like out of NFTs <clears throat> where you can, you can document ownership of something that is permanent, uh, and then you can trade that thing. Um, and then when you combine it with artificial intelligence and surveillance, then you start transforming the ins insurance industry, and that's another industry. And then when you combine it with, uh, <clears throat> with digitizing uh, the healthcare world, uh, you have another multi-trillion dollar industry and if you change insurance, what's really interesting is that you change government because what is government? It's like 80% insurance programs. It's your healthcare insurance, your workman's comp insurance, your 
Medicare, your <clears throat> your welfare, your uh, unemployment insurance. It's all those insurance companies. Well, if you can create a better insurance company just by using Bitcoin, the blockchain, smart contracts, and some surveillance, you you don't need all of that heavy government. You can have a very light touch government and treat everyone the same and provide that safety and security to everyone around you. And maybe not just everyone in your geographic area, but everyone around the planet, because there's no reason that those services can't be provided cross border. So this is the beginning of something really extraordinary. Imagine a guard, uh, a, uh, an insurance company that instead of saying, well, you pay your premium, you pay your premium, pay your premium, then you issue a claim, then you go to our legal department, you fight, 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 and then you get something. Well, compare that with you pay your premium, you pay your premium, you pay your premium. The surveillance sees that your house is burned down. Here's your check. It is, or here's your Bitcoin. It is in your wallet right now before you even knew your house burned down. That kind of thing and that kind of thinking will attract all the customers everywhere. And that kind of thinking then can make governments much better service providers. And I think of government as a service providing. Uh, yeah, I think and- it needs to be provided uh, as, to, as opposed to these people in government that are saying, you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to wear a mask, you have to, and and uh, lock in place and, you know, I think uh, freedom just works so much better. And all you have to do is look at Korea. You look at South Korea, well, my dad fought in Korea and, and uh, after the war, they drew the demilitarized zone. And in North Korea, they were Marxists. They, uh, they were all focused on a, a socialist dictatorship Every government tells everybody what they have to do. Everybody does exactly what the government tells them or else. And, uh, and then uh, in South Korea, it was a democracy, free market, capitalistic society. And, um, and what happened? Okay, that line has kept those people apart for about 70 years. What's happened in 70 years? Well, the average South Korean is now worth 460 times what the average North Korean is worth. And that includes purchasing power, 460 times. They live 460 times better than the average North Korean. And here's the real clincher. The average South Korean is four inches taller than the average North Korean today. And, uh, and hey, if that isn't an argument for freedom, I don't know what is. I, and so whenever the government says, you have to do this or you have to do that, I think we should all take a pause and say, is this the right thing for us or do we need to keep our freedom? And, uh, and I'm, I tend to be a believer that freedom creates a great society, an innovative economy, wealth for the people, a better life, um, a better environment, better healthcare, better education. The more free a society is, the better all of that is because people can innovate, they can try things, they can test one thing, move on. 
and, uh, and, and people learn and grow at a much faster rate. So uh, that was a long answer. To short <laughs> well, that, was, that was great. And one of the uh, examples that, that you gave of Switzerland and the experience with Bitcoin, its early openness, and then clamping down, and then seeing uh, a kind of a brain drain or a capital, human capital flight to these other countries. Um, one of the themes that you have, I think, consistently emphasized throughout is, is competition and, and choice. And uh, that's competition for human capital, for financial capital, and uh, people having the ability to, to vote, um, to change states, to change you know, residents, to change uh, even you know, nationality. Um, and uh, and I, I guess my, my question is, um, I, we saw recently uh, Janet Yellen calling for a, um, a minimum corporate, uh, corporate tax uh, for, throughout the world because she wants us to raise our um, corporate tax rate. And uh, at least I guess the one encouraging thing about that is you know, for so often um, that those who've wanted to raise taxes have, have argued, oh, well, it doesn't, you know, tax rates don't have any impact. Higher taxes aren't going to have any effect on people's uh, behavior, well, she's acknowledging that, that it, it will have an effect. And um, unfortunately, she, she wants to kind of uh, price fix or tax fix so that we wouldn't have that, uh, that, that mobility and, and that kind of experimentation of people um, going to, to where they can get the best re return on their investment. Um, I guess I, I, I'd like to know what you see it, the, the impact of, of the change in administration, do you expect that it's going to have uh, an impact on the, the growth of uh, cryptocurrency adoption and innovation in the United States? Um, Janet you know, Yellen, Biden's Secretary of Treasury, has also raised questions about Bitcoin's legitimacy and stability and, and kind of spoken om ominously about the dangers she, she says the, that the currency poses. Um, what, do you have concerns? Well, I think she came from, she was the head of the Fed. And if you're the head of the Fed, all you're thinking about are dollars. That's all you think about. You think about how do we manage the interest rates so that the inflation rate doesn't go too high and so that we can have maximum growth. And she's thinking about that. And this Bitcoin thing came from you know, the side and she was kind of thinking, what? What is this thing? Why are people using something else as currency? Why aren't they just using the dollars? But now she is the Secretary of the Treasury and she, she, she has to think of all the people in the country and how do I help all the people in the country? And so she has to start weighing the innovation and the uh, attractiveness of the United States uh, against trying to sort of control the money supply. And I think controlling the money, money supply, again, is probably not the best answer because Bitcoin's just better. Um, and people say, well, it's volatile. And I go, well, yeah, one Bitcoin is always going to be one Bitcoin. And there are only 21 million of them. And all these other currencies are going to be very volatile as they slowly disappear from the map. There is no reason that we should have a current, when we've got a currency that is trusted, decentralized, open, 
transparent can provide things like micropayments and, uh, and cross-border payments very quickly and effectively um, and just do it right on the, on the internet and it just goes, um, that why are we thinking that we're gonna have a currency that is tied to a political decision or political, uh, the swings of power and some of them print money and some of them restrict the printing of money. And why, why do that when we know that we already have a trusted third party now? And it's getting more and more trust in the system. Uh, Bitcoin has been money with a whole bunch of hackers trying to hack it. And no one has been able to hack, knock on wood, the, the, the Bitcoin blockchain. So it is more secure. Your banks are getting hacked all the time. So it's more secure than your bank. It's more secure than your bank backed by the government's promise of refunding your money. The government's just printed trillions of dollars. What does that do? Makes all of our dollars worth less because there are more of them out there. I mean, if you're the only game in town, um, then everybody comes to your door. But if there are 50 of you, then they don't all come to your door. Well, now we've got a, a currency where you, you might build something of value and then if the government just prints money, then the value you've created is less. And I think I'm gonna get into my, my other kind of key theme and that is trust. The Singapore, Singapore used to be the, maybe the poorest country in the world and the least trustworthy. There was crime everywhere, it was just a mess. Then Lee Kuan Yew came in there and he was, that was about 70 years ago, 60, 70 years ago. And, and he just built trust one brick at a time into that system. And now the Singapore people by far are the most trustworthy people on the planet and they're the richest. So they've gone from the poorest to the richest building on trust. Okay, so where is there trust and where is there not trust? Well, a lot of trust in Singapore. Well, if you live in certain parts of Africa and they've got um, a dictator, a socialist dictator who just takes everything whenever it's built, then you have no incentive to build anything of value. If you build something of value, they come in there and they take it with either with guns or in the case of Nigeria, they just print more money and that money drops in value about 75% a year. So why would you wanna build something in Nigerian Naira or Argentinian pesos uh, of any great value? You know that it's gonna drop in value immediately uh, you know, and, and it's like their money is like a hot potato. Well, that's not true of the US dollar yet. But once we have inflation, I've seen this happen before under Jimmy Carter, where it, it's a downward spiral and people have less incentive to build something of value if they know that it's going to drop, that whatever they build is going to be dropping in value over that time. So I think. Um, Janet Yellen now thinking for the entire country and not just thinking about her, her old job, thinking for the entire country, she's going to want to build a base where people 
have trust and they want to work there and build something of value. And Bitcoin is just a better way to build that value. It's just, um, and I mean, Kat, if you're 35 or younger and I give you the choice, $58,000 or one Bitcoin, they all take one Bitcoin. And if they're older, they all take the dollars. And, and what's happening is all of these young people are seeing that this is the wave of the future. People have asked me, you know, you got all that Bitcoin. So when are you gonna sell it? And I, I say, into what? Why would I take the currency of the future, the currency of the now and the future and, and trade that for the currency of the past? It would be like taking my euros and turning them into drachma or, you know, or taking US dollars and turning them into Confederate dollars. It, it doesn't make any sense. I, I'm looking, I'm saying the, the future is a very bright future. And most of the people who are younger and excited about this new future understand it and they wanna be a part of it. And then these older people are trying to either cling to the past or whatever. Um, and, and they're hurting their, I mean, if you're in government and you're trying to cling to the past, you are hurting your people. And I think that you, I think that uh, Janet Yellen and all the rest of the administration, the new administration should, um, and do. I mean, I think they're thinking, uh, they're generally thinking for the good of the country, um, make sure that we are a trusted source and a free source of, um, of governance. And if, if they're trusted and free, we're gonna continue this amazing influx of the brightest and best people from around the world creating all this great value. And we're also going to um, innovate like crazy because we'll know that we can hold the value. So rather than saying, you know, poo poo, whatever on Bitcoin, they should either be improving the dollar or making Bitcoin a national currency too, the way Japan did. Um, and it's very simple to do. All you really need to do is we have a company called Cryptio that does all the accounting and, um, and they can tax in Bitcoin. And, and so you build your business completely in Bitcoin. You can get taxed in Bitcoin and, um, and the US government probably make more money. Uh, they'd probably be better off. And so would all of those entrepreneurs and so all those people who are trying to uh, build something of value in this new way of doing things. Um, and it's great. I mean, we've crossed the chasm. Bitcoin was a fringe, crazy, wild thing. And they were the stories were amazing. Somebody paid $2 million worth of Bitcoin for a pizza. And um, there are some of the Mt. Gox, the, the biggest exchange just basically disappeared the money. Um, and you'd think that that would be the end of a currency, but clearly this currency is needed. It's needed for, um, it's needed for the unbanked. There are a lot of people who can't afford a bank account. I mean, the banks don't want you unless you, you're going to put like $1,000 into the bank. They don't want you. And so then they don't bank you. And then you're unbanked and you're, you're part of this weird economy. Well, Bitcoin's available for you if you're a part of that economy. And you and 
if you were, you probably already benefited from it. Um, so, and then wanna... if you're, let, let's say you're Lucasfilm and you got to pay 15,000 people who worked on a Star Wars movie every time somebody swipes a credit card and pays for a movie. Well, the great news there is that that can all be honest. That can now some of those Hollywood types probably are saying, wait, honest? Um, but it can be completely honest. Every, that $20 that somebody pays to see the movie can immediately go all the way through the waterfall and have a certain amount of Bitcoin just dropped into everybody's wallet and they will always be paid the amount they are owed. I've, I've gotten checks from Hollywood, you know, it costs about $8 to send a check. I've got checks for 26 cents from Hollywood. And I'm, I'm thinking, this is so stupid. But now they have a solution. Now they have a better, better option. And now retailers are starting to accept Bitcoin. You use open node. If you're a retailer, you can, you can accept Bitcoin and, uh, uh, and it, and it, um, you can have the transaction speeds can be faster than the Visa network. So that's exciting too. Well, I am excited to say that the Atlas Society now uh, accepts Bitcoin donations, and uh, and and what you you just shared something that that will uh, influence my thinking on this because it's new. It's something that we've done in the past um, few months, and uh, and I've got our trustees, and they're saying, well, okay, well, you know, once those donations come in, you know, you need to cash them out and 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 get the, uh, the dollars. But but uh, we'll, we'll see. Um, no. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have. I have two, I, we've been taking Bitcoin at Draper University. We, we have a program for entrepreneurs, it's a five week program and we, we turn ordinary people into great entrepreneurs. Um, and they've come from a hundred countries and we've started 500 companies out of that. But we, we agreed to take Bitcoin about four or five years ago. Wow, and, we uh, are late. And it's, it's paid for the, two guys paid in Bitcoin paid for the entire, all the money I've put into Draper University. I pay about 2 million a year. That, that, those two people. Now that's $10 million. So, and I think this just is gonna continue. So um, I, I would say, yeah, you accept it and you keep it in a Coinbase account and you keep turning your dollars into Bitcoin and you'll be much better off. I think All right. Anne well, Rand we, would Anne Rand would love you for it. She knows <laughs> this is this is a natural for her. I, I completely agree. Now I was also interested by how just just in the same way that you got interested in, in Tesla, reading the story of what started your interest in, in Bitcoin. And if I understand correctly, it was when you know, you realize that they're one of the ways that multiplayer games were monetizing was by selling uh, virtual products like virtual weapons within their virtual world. And, and that, that got you started thinking about it. Um, and you had an early foray into, uh, into Bitcoin and, and you yourself did experience some of the pitfalls of what can, can happen. But, but walk yeah. us through a little bit about your origin story with Bitcoin. Yeah, they, for me, it was this Korean guy who said, hey, 
everybody's playing this game. It's called uh, legacy or something like that, uh, lineage. And I said, well, that's great. And he said, yeah, it's so important in Korea that I have hired a, a guy to be my avatar in the game while I go to work in the real world. So he felt that it was as important to keep going in the virtual world as it was to keep his business going in the real world. And this is a very brilliant man. And I, and he, he bought his son a sword for his birthday. And I said, a sword? Yeah, he said, yeah, it's pixels on the screen. And I paid real, you know, cash for it. And I started to think virtual product, real money or fiat money. And I started to put that together and I thought, oh, wow, there's going to be all this virtual money in all these multiplayer games. And somebody's going to figure out that you can take the money from one game and convert it somehow to another game, another game, another game. And you're going to have virtual money that works for everything. And it didn't happen that way. It turned out Bitcoin came from nowhere. And it was digital money and I was looking for digital money. You know, I was looking for something that would happen there. And uh, yeah, this is a heartbreaker. I, I was, I paid $250,000 for at $6 a Bitcoin. And that money just disappeared. <laughs> and that's why I thought it was over. But then Bitcoin's value only dropped about 15% on that news. And so what that did was it made me realize this is really important to a lot of people. If, if somebody's taken that much money out of this system and, and the, the currency is still an active, actively traded currency, something's going on out there. And so I, I dug in and that's where I found that people were using it for remittance cross-border. They were using it to pay employees in other countries, uh, pay for supplies in other countries where they didn't have bank accounts. They were um, they were using it for uh, micropayments where uh, where people didn't know what how much they would owe, but it was a formulaic thing, and they would have to just drop it in over time. And this was an easy way to do it with a smart contract. And and then I thought about it, and I thought, wow, you know. We haven't had a change in the technology of currency since they created the Federal Reserve note and dropped the, the gold standard. That was a long time ago. Uh, so it, it was ripe for the picking. And when the U.S. Marshal's Office auctioned off uh, their Bitcoin, I, um, I uh, a bit over market. Um, and I, I looked pretty stupid there for a while because it went from 632 down to like 180. Uh, but the price clearly has come soaring back and it's all in fits and starts. It comes, it goes, it comes and goes. But <laughs> that's relative to the dollar. As I say, it's the dollar that's volatile as it slowly disappears from use. It's not just the dollar all these currencies and the first ones to go are going to be the, the Naira, the the Argentinian peso, the Venezuelan Bolivar, you know, the ones that nobody has any trust in. And eventually that's going to work its way up to uh, the U S dollar and the Euro and the yen. 
Fascinating. All right. Well, let's get to some of our audience questions because this has just flown by and we have less than 20 minutes left. Uh, Vicki says she had read that you were an early investor in Robinhood. What is your take on what happened with uh, Wall Street bets and, and GameStop? I mean, for the under GameStop, it's pretty that was fascinating. That was and, and, you know, if you're an Atlas Society member, you understand supply and demand very well. <clears throat> well, what, what happens in, uh, in the world is that <clears throat> when a company's going down um, and, they, and people feel like that's going to go to zero, then they'll short the stock, which means that they sell stock they don't own. Well, um, these clever guys on Reddit um, recognized that uh, the GameStop actually had more short interest than the value of the company. And, uh, and so the short interest was so high that what would happen if people started to buy it is that those people would have to cover their short interest, which means they have to buy it. And then it just keeps going up and there's nothing stopping that from going up. And uh, and so GameStop took off like this, this wild, you know, from, and GameStop, whatever, it was a bunch of retail stores that were selling video games that were in cartridges and, and CD-ROMs. I mean, it was on its way out. And all of a sudden, there's this big burst of activity around GameStop just because they, this clever guy had figured this out. And, uh, and then he told all his Reddit friends and then they created this huge interest in GameStop. Well, it, um, it got so big and it was growing so out of control that it started to um, hit the, you know, all of these brokerage houses are uh, regulated, heavily regulated and too heavily regulated if you ask me, but they're heavily regulated and so when GameStop started, it started to be this thing, um, they had to, and, and since Robinhood and E-Trade and uh, Schwab, they, they all, um, you know, they, they allow the individual investor to, to buy at the market, whatever that market is. Well, the market just kept going and going and going. And some of these ratios started to change um, to where they had to halt trading. And then that angered a lot of people who were who were buying the GameStop because it, that, that stops the trading. So the price stays right there. It doesn't keep going up. Yeah. And that um, that angered people. But, um, but if you want to blame somebody, you blame the government. You know, it's really interesting. Somehow the government allowed us um, to blame the banks for the, the, uh, the loan problem that we had in 2008, that was the government said to the businesses, we'll guarantee the loans. You just make them. Make those loans. I don't care if they're high risk loans, you make them. We'll guarantee them. And so the banks went out and made those loans. And of course, those loans weren't any good. And then the banks get blamed. This is the same situation. The government should be blamed. They're the ones who set those regulations in motion. They made it so that GameStop, that, that uh, the brokerage houses had to stop trading. Uh, it was, 
you know, you, you, you know, the villain is, is as they say, the, the, you're looking Blame for the, victim. the problem, Blame the the problem victim. is us, because yeah. <laughs> we're the government. Well, um, so not anyway, that was a fascinating, amazing run. And it also kind of put a check on the short traders, you know, mm -hmm. these guys who have made a, a, a living off of just shorting things as they're going out of business. There's always hope. And hey, GameStop has some hope. Now they've got $10 million or something. So they actually do have hope. They can do whatever. They can buy a yeah. game company. Reinvent themselves. Yeah. Uh, make, make it all... And think of the branding they've gotten out of this. That's that's got to be worth something. It, it's it's pretty amazing. So another another company that you've been involved with um, and that had uh, had been in the news, uh, perhaps you know unfairly, um, is one that uh, reminds me a lot of of the Atlas Shrug. You work the Atlas Society, and um, the book, our book, Atlas uh, Shrug, tells the story of these extraordinary uh, entrepreneurs who are often vilified for their uh, innovations, even though they are, you know, the, the atlases that are holding, holding the world aloft. And uh, that was that when I was reading about your, uh, your account of, um, of uh, being an early investor in Theranos, um, it, it reminded me a bit of uh, Ayn Rand's, you know, observation that uh, thousands of years ago, the first man who discovered how to make fire was probably uh, was burned. probably burned <laughs> at the stake by you know the, the the fire that he taught his brothers to to light. It, you you knew you know Elizabeth Holmes. Um, you knew her. She she walked into your office when she was uh, 19 years old with with this idea. Um, is is this kind of vilification uh, sort of of what happened to Elizabeth Holmes? Is it kind of a, a modern day witch hunt? Well, it's, yeah, it's something like that. But here's what it is. An entrepreneur starts a business. If that business becomes pretty big, nobody cares. If it becomes so big that it changes the lives, the, the jobs of all these other people, if it, if it affects a really big industry, um, that industry is going to fight back. Mm -hmm. And think of what healthcare, this is, a low-cost testing system uses low-cost in money, low-cost in blood. It's um, and by the way, it's happening now. I mean, they only were able to delay it, but it's going to happen um, anyway. They um, it, it, look. It happened in taxi. Where the taxis came after Uber. You know, the the car companies came after Tesla. If you get big enough they figure out some way to attack. Um, the banks went after Bitcoin. Now, of course- Hotels went great. after Airbnb. Hotels went after Airbnb. It's, it always happens because they say, that's our competitor. They're eating our lunch. What do we do about it? Um, and I remember this bitter, bitter guy who gets up and he says, we've been in this business for 40 years and her company's worth more than ours is. And it was like this just vitriol, awful feeling. Envy. And that was, uh, yeah. And so, so, of course, you know, they, how, do, how do you attack? You attack first by ignoring it, and then it doesn't go away. 
And then you attack by ganging up against it where, you know, not only the, the testing companies, but the drug companies didn't like this. It was gonna lower the cost of drugs. People were gonna have much better understanding of, of what their blood tests were over time. There were a lot of interesting things happening. Um, the doctors don't like it. The insurance companies really don't like it because it costs a lot less. And, uh, and so you get the attacks. Well, the, the, this attack came in the form of a, of a writer for the Wall Street Journal who just kept pounding, pounding, pounding the message that the competitors were sending. And, uh, and eventually it got to be such a big deal that the government had to say, what, hey, what's going on here? What, what's wrong? And they came in and they, they uh, you know, when you, when you start getting the government poking around in your business, they're gonna be, you're gonna make a mistake. And I think she did. And, uh, and, uh, and I think then uh, she's uh, second mistake. She surrounded herself with lawyers rather than a PR firm. And uh, the lawyers, you know, are, are all spinning their wheels and spending her money on what's legal and what's not. And by the way, when you're an entrepreneur, you're setting a new legality. You don't know what the, what the law is going to be around this new thing. And you have to kind of work to get to the place you want to go. Um, and I think she was, she got scared. And, you know, when you get scared, you, you rely too much on your lawyer. I mean, I, there's a point, point there where um, she was spending more on her legal bills per month than we do investing. I mean, a huge, huge, huge amount of money on her legal bills. And um, whereas, you know, you, you see other alternatives, you know, what, what happened with Airbnb, they, all the customers came rising up. She didn't have enough customers to make it rise, make them rise up. There were a lot of moms that were really happy with this pin prick instead of like the going into the vein. And, uh, uh, it wasn't, uh, it, there weren't enough, uh, even if they were yelling at the top of their lungs, there, there weren't enough to support her as she got systematically taken down by, you know, the lawyers, the government, the PR, uh, lawsuits, the whole thing. Uh, and anyway, you see it every time. And I warn, you know, when they come to Draper University, I say, that's our, that's our warning story. Mm -hmm. um, look, when you get big, fine. When you get really big, you're going to affect an industry. And usually it's an oligopoly that is that likes it the way it is. And they're providing bad service at a high cost and they will defend themselves to the death. And, uh, and you need to know how to, um, to fight back. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I mean, Elon was brilliant there. The papers came after him, said this car doesn't make it in cold weather. And he, he said, what do you mean it doesn't? And he, then he realized that he had, he, he can track where all the cars are. And it was the writer drove around in a parking lot. So they run out of battery 
so that he could prove his story. <laughs> and uh, and Elon called him on it, and you know somehow the New York Times didn't fire that writer, but he should have. Amazing. Um, and and uh, and entrepreneurs need to use that. The press comes from that to say yes. It's yes. It's not the same result you'd get from one of these uh, competitors, but it's good, and we can do it over time, and it doesn't hurt the person as much because you don't take as much blood, and blah 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 blah. That would have been the approach to win the argument, win the, the hearts and minds of the people. Um, but <clears throat> as it is, uh, boy, poor Elizabeth, uh, you know, fear, you know, you're a reader. Uh, maybe you've read Dune. Fear oh, is yes, fear is the mind killer. I will let yeah. the, the, the fear pass over me and through me and in my inner mind eye, I will look back and where the fear has gone, only I will remain. So it's, it's wonderful. So Tim, you probably won't remember, but I, I do because I was at a more impressionable age. Um, uh, our, our paths first crossed when I uh, worked for Ted Forsman, which was in uh, the 90s. And, Weed, uh, I remember meeting you. Yeah, it was at one of the uh, the Forsman. You were at one of the events, that great yeah. event he had for in, school in uh, Aspen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he used to to uh, to host, uh, but I was working, so I was I was in the background. Um, and uh, I remember, you know, that was the time, the 1990s. It was just a thrilling time for venture capital, and uh, you know, everybody Still was is. just. Well, so talk, talk a little bit about that because, you know, things have changed. You know, uh, we, we had um, the, the early 2000s and, and you talked about this, this kind of going through this valley of going from heroes to zeros. Uh, you guys recovered and, and rebounded in particular, uh, given that you had uh, made an emphasis of, of uh, overseas and international expansion. But, uh, but how... How have how has it changed? What are the things that you know now that you might have done differently? And um, yeah. Well, I, you know, people ask what's your biggest regret, and it's it's the the paths I didn't take. It's not the paths I took. Um, it's not backing a few companies. I made a huge mistake not to back Netflix, for instance. And I said, wait, you're going to send. DVDs through the U.S. mail, and that's going to be a thing. Um, and we're going to be—we're a year from now. We're all going to be streaming anyway. So why are you doing that? And he said, "Well, they're not ready for that, and I need to build my customer base." And that was right. Uh, you know, I should have understood. Um, anyway, so there are—and there are many like that. I've missed many great companies for a variety of reasons. Some of which I did have control over, and some. I didn't, it was partner decision. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I'd say, you know, really the first part of this question is where venture capital has gone. Well, it's interesting. It started with just like when my grandfather and my dad got started. My grandfather was the first venture capitalist in Silicon Valley. My dad was one of the pioneers of venture capital. That was kind of a clubby environment. There are a few of them. They kind of get together and say, okay, I'll put up some of the money. You put up some of the money. 
and the money will take half and the entrepreneur will take half and let's just see how it goes. Um, and that really changed when the results were so good. And all of a sudden Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch were coming out to California to see why, how these guys were doing. And uh, then they got a law changed and that changed so that um, it was as a fiduciary, you are not only allowed to, but encouraged to some portion of your um, money in a um, in venture capital. And that was a huge influx of money. And then the ideas followed and the businesses, you know, the entrepreneurs followed and they said, well, wow, that guy made money. I can do that. I, know, I met him. I can do better than that. And, and so it, it really grew out the Silicon Valley. Well, then the other thing that happened was more and more people saw how great it was to be a venture capitalist, how, how what a variety and interesting thing that it is to do and, and what, how great it is to be an entrepreneur. And so that has proliferated. That has blown up everywhere and, uh, and around the world. And that was kind of one of my missions when I got started was to spread venture capital and entrepreneurship around the world. And uh, it's been fun to do. I got to see the world. And, it's been and, and you're bringing the world to, to you too, because so many of your uh, students at, at the Draper University are, are international, so. Oh yeah. And, and uh, moving forward, I think anyone can be a venture capitalist, anyone can be an entrepreneur. And I think we will all be both eventually. I think we will come to a point where we'll all be both. Um, and that will be a, that'll be a real breakthrough. And I think our global society will grow at a, a very fast and healthy clip uh, when we do that. And we'll also have uh, extraordinary ideas that ordinarily entrepreneurs might not have had. And that comes from the collaboration it's competition and collaboration. It's really interesting, but, but you learn from your competitors. And when entrepreneurs fail, I always say, hey, you know what, why are you so down? And they say, well, it didn't work. And I say, well, God, will you move the ball? You know, think of all the people who have learned because you came out there with this really interesting thing. And think of all your competitors who are doing you know, different things. And some of them are doing very well with what you were trying to get done. So feel good about it. Um, and I think that that um, is starting to permeate the society too. Um, it certainly permeates uh, your, your book, How to Be a Startup Hero. It is optimistic in a time when we really need um, some, uh, some data-driven optimism and experience-driven optimism. So I want to, again, encourage, let's, we're going to put it into the chat. Let's put it on all of the social media um, platforms on, on where you can go to, to buy the book. Uh, and then, Tim, where, where's the best place to, to follow you and your exploits? Oh, well, you can see I'm on Twitter. I'm Tim Draper on Twitter. And I think I'm Timothy Draper on LinkedIn and Tim Draper on Facebook. And I... I um, I mostly, uh, I usually put it up on all three, whatever it is, um, but probably best to follow me on Twitter at Tim Draper. Um, and then uh, 
every once in a while I'll do something weird like I did a clubhouse the other day and we have a show called Meet the Drapers and right. I do it with my dad and my sister and my daughter and now my son is also getting involved um, and then we bring in guest judges who are really extraordinary the Vivek Ranadive who runs the Kings um, uh, Ronnie Lott who was a Super Bowl hero and created an amazing career after that um, and uh, and a number of and a, the first woman who paid to go live in the space station for 11 days and she said hey well, yeah I said well what was the biggest surprise and she said washing my hair I had to like the there was a ball of water floating <laughs> through the air and I had to get my head under that ball of water to get my hair washed um, but we've had great guest judges. We've also had amazing entrepreneurs. Um, now we're in the thousands of entrepreneurs who apply to be on the show. And uh, the show, if you're one of the winners, you, oh, it's really interesting. It's like, uh, think of Shark Tank, but then the viewers can invest. So we do this crowdfunding wow. thing. So the, you, the viewer can go ahead and invest in these companies if they see something of value. And, uh, and so that has been great. And for the companies who've been on it, at first we had a million dollar minimum because, maximum because of the crowdfunding rules, but those rules have jumped to 5 million as a maximum. And so now these companies are getting real money to get their business started. Uh, by coming on the show, Meet the Drapers. So yeah, you can see that on Draper TV, draper.tv, I think. And um, and you can see it on meetthedrapers.com. So uh, that's another way you can uh, follow me. We do have uh, 10 million viewers now. So we're, we're bigger than Shark Tank, but, but we're not bigger in the US. We, we have a huge following in India and other countries. All right. Uh, well, we're, we're going to check it out. That, that, that sounds like a lot of fun. I've seen the, the opening and um, this is a very creative guy. He writes poetry. He writes songs. Uh, so he is he is the Renaissance man that his mother mother always wanted him to be. And that's, maybe that's right. You did read this book. Good for you. <laughs> maybe, maybe just we will uh, see. I'm, well, I'll talk to the the real power behind the, the throne. I'll talk to Karen. Uh, about about getting Tim to come out to our, our gala in Malibu in uh, November. We we had uh, Peter Diamandis as the honoree last year, and uh, and we have um, Peter Thiel as as the honoree. Wow, uh, that's fantastic! I love yeah. that. Actually, yeah. Diamandis is fantastic too. You really do well. Well, we you, you uh, know there's, how a, to there's get a lot of Ayn Rand fans out there, and uh, just a mm -hmm. lot of persistence and people who who share. Uh, just really a, like you, an, an optimistic um, view about what's possible because I think it's really too easy to get kind of uh, distracted with with you know what's not going right. There's so much Don't you just watch have to take news. a dynamic. Avoid yeah, turn it off. News. Turn it off. Yeah. Yeah. Read the Economist once a week. You'll figure out everything that's, that's going enough. on. Or Financial Times. Just read that once in a while. I, don't watch the news. It'll ruin uh, your life, I, and you'll agreed. live in and, fear. It's one, one of the, the, you're never going to do anything. 
Peter's Peter's advice, uh, Peter Diamandis's advice, just turn turn off the news. And I, I I couldn't agree more. So turn off the news, turn on Meet the Drapers, and uh, and then tune in next week. We're going to be interviewing Professor Jason Hill, um, who's an objectivist scholar, and uh, it's, it'll be fun, but a hard act to, to follow. So thank you, Tim. Tim, thank you, Karen, and uh, and we'll be following you. Terrific. Thank you, Jag. That's terrific. And Karen did hear you. She's right <laughs> over here. Um, right. and, and to the Atlas Society, I, I do love the book. I've read that one. I thought it was fantastic. I read Fountainhead too. Um, you guys, I, I like that you're, you're following her way of thinking. Um, it's great. So, so keep at it. Will do. Thank you, okay. Tim. Bye. Okay, let me know when the Malibu thing is. I will do November November 4th, but I'll follow up. Okay. okay. Bye. Bye-bye.